good to see everyone today. If you'll get out your sermon outline, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 8. As I said earlier, it's sort of a unique passage. It's where we've come in Hebrews and a little unique for Easter. Um, We'll see if we can make it work. Uh, It's also a little unique because if you look at the footnote, um, as most of you know, I came here in January of 1997. The footnote says I preached this text here in October of 1996 which means this is the text that I preached when I candidated here. So it couldn't have been too bad because you all hired me and you haven't fired me yet. But it's a little shorter, so there was probably, you know, um, not quite knowing what you were going to get into here. Um, But I just thought that was interesting, so I guess we get to look at this text a second time, and then you can decide whether they made a good decision or not, you know, 18 and a half years ago. So, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 8. We'll be reading the whole chapter. It's 13 verses, not too long. And uh, this is continuing an argument that started back in chapter 6 of the importance, the value, the worth of Jesus as our great high priest. So please look along in your Bibles, in your outline, on whatever device you happen to have your Bible on, and uh, you can turn off whatever game you were playing and uh, get that Bible app to come up. So Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 through 13. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises." For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. 
from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word, and we need it. We need it as much as that first congregation needed to hear this message. We need to know that there is something better than what we see in our world. We need to know that there is something sufficient to meet our real needs and solve our true problems. We need to know that there is something that can fully satisfy every demand of the law and every righteous claim of God. And so by your Holy Spirit, help us to see Jesus. Show him to us this morning in your holy word and make our hearts believe in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I got my special honey lemon tea water stuff. It's supposed to do miracles. So we'll see. There's a story about a bishop from North Carolina who many, many, many years ago took his two sons off on a college tour. Some of you are in that season of life now. You're doing college tours. So they did a college tour. And they went to visit a small religious college in the Midwest. They stayed at the home of the college president. He was also served as a science professor at the school. And so after they had dinner the first night, the bishop declared that the end times couldn't be far off because everything about nature had been discovered and all possible inventions had been conceived. And the young college president politely disagreed. He said he felt there would be many more discoveries and many more new inventions. The bishop got angry and said, No, I think this is as good as it's going to get. And then he challenged the college president to name just one such new invention. The president replied he was certain that within 50 years, men would be able to fly. Nonsense, sputtered the bishop. Only angels fly. Well, the bishop was quite put out. He didn't sign his sons up to go to that college, and he took everybody back home to North Carolina. But it appears that the bishop's two sons had listened much more carefully to the college president than he had, because the bishop's last name was Wright, and his two sons were Orville and Wilbur, the inventors of the airplane. And I think sometimes we get in the mindset of the bishop, and we wonder, is this as good as it gets. Is there going to be anything new? Is there going to be anything better? And sometimes it feels that, you know, life is just sort of stalled out. May not feel like it's worth it. We have trouble looking ahead to better times. And I think that small church of Hebrew Christians had to be wondering, is this as good as it gets? It's not looking all that great to them. It's hard to believe the best is yet to come. And they're in good company because not too many years earlier, there were a group of disciples 
huddled in an upper room, dismayed over how things had turned out. They expected triumph, and they're facing essentially total loss. They expected coronation. They got crucifixion. They expected glory. They got Golgotha. And as they sat around in dismay and despair, they too had to be wondering, is this as good as it gets? Because it's not looking all that great to them either. And for the first disciples, it was hard to believe that Jesus wasn't dead. They saw the cross with their own eyes. They heard him cry out, it is finished. They watched him die. They heard he was buried. He was gone. It was over. And now, many years later, despite all that the church knew about Jesus' death and his subsequent resurrection, for the Hebrew Christians living in the middle of suffering and persecution and doubt and confusion, as I imagine it is much the same way this morning in Kenya, it's hard to believe that Jesus makes a difference. It's hard to believe that Christ really is sufficient for them. It's hard to believe that Jesus is better. It's hard to believe that the best is yet to come. And so the author of Hebrews comes now to chapter 8. And he makes it clear that he wants them and us to have no doubts, no confusion, that Christ is sufficient and that Christ is enough. And so he continues to describe the ministry of Christ as our great high priest. We're going to go through the first few points fairly quickly, and then we'll settle in. So first he tells us about his sufficient service, verses 1 through 5. I know it says 1 through 2, I just, I don't know what I did. It's supposed to be verses 1 through 5 there, his sufficient service. says, now the point in what we are saying is this, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. <clears throat> they serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. <coughs> Excuse me. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. <coughs> I've been fighting a cold all week. First thing we see is sufficient service. <coughs> Christ's service is sufficient because we're told here he serves in heaven, not on earth. He serves in the true temple, the one that's set up by the Lord, not by men. He serves in the presence of God, not kneeling before the throne as we would, 
but sitting next to it at the right hand of God in the position of honor. And the service is active. It continues. It's concerned with his people. His service is sufficient. It's not only sufficient, it's real. This text tells us that Christ, he doesn't serve in a tabernacle set up by men, which is a copy and shadow of the heavenly things, of the true temple in heaven, but he serves in that true temple, in the real temple, in a real place, in heaven, in the real presence of God. He's not going through the motions. He's not going through some ceremony. He's not trying to copy what's happening in heaven. He is really there, in heaven, in the original, not the copy, in the place of substance, not the place of shadow. Christ is sufficient, and his service is no mere copy or shadow, but it's the real thing. In order for us to have no doubts, no confusion, that Christ is sufficient, that Christ is enough, the author of Hebrews continues to describe the work of Christ as our great high priest. So second, he tells us his service up there uh, before the Lord is sufficient, but second, he has a sufficient ministry to us. Sufficient ministry to us. Look at verses 6 through 9. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And so I show no concern for them, declares the Lord. So now we see Christ is sufficient because his ministry is much more excellent to that of the priests. No shadows, all substance. No continuing ongoing sacrifices, but a once-for-all sacrifice. No more earthly mediators. One heavenly mediator. There is one person who stands between God and man, the Lord Jesus Christ, our great high priest. He is the heavenly mediator, the one whose ministry really counts because his ministry is continually interceding with God the Father on our behalf. His ministry is saving us from our sins. His ministry is a ministry of redemption, a ministry of forgiveness, a ministry of acceptance, a ministry of cleansing. His ministry is exactly what we need. And his ministry is fully and forever sufficient. Not only is his ministry sufficient, but we're told in verse 6 that it is enacted, it is founded on better promises. So continuing to describe the work of our great high priest, the author of Hebrews tells us about these sufficient promises. Sufficient promises, verses 10 through 13. He says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord. 
for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. We have three unique promises here. Promises of God for the people of God. Promises of things that God knows we so desperately need, even if we don't realize it ourselves. Promises that are very old, since they're being quoted from the prophet Jeremiah chapter 31, which we read in our responsive reading this morning. And yet promises that are very new, because they're all fulfilled and completed only in Christ. And the very first promise is the promise of a relationship. There's no blank there. I was being very kind. Verse 10 we read, I will be their God and they shall be my people. That's a relationship here. It states that you belong to me and I belong to you. And not only is there a relationship stated here, but it's a relationship that's available to everyone. It's not restricted to a certain group of people. It's not just for the Pharisees or the Sadducees or the scribes. It's not restricted to a certain class of priests. But now anyone can come to Christ and personally know him. For God says, verse 11, For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. And finally, it's an inward relationship. It's not one based on what others say or even on what I preach, but on what God has put in our hearts and minds. God says, back to verse 10, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. He's given us a conscience, just his moral law, to know the difference between right and wrong, good and evil, that we could live according to his word, and that we could live in a relationship with him. So that's the first promise of a relationship. Second, we have the promise of forgiveness. It's a wonderful promise. This is precisely what the old covenant couldn't do. This is what the law, in and of itself, was insufficient to complete. Now we have a promise of pure forgiveness. Not forgiveness based on conditions. You do this for me and I'll do this for you. But forgiveness is full of mercy. Forgiveness that doesn't give us what we deserve. But it gives us cleansing. Forgiveness that washes away our sins. Forgiveness that says God chooses, not because he has to, but because he wants to. That God chooses to forgive our wickedness and that God chooses to remember our sins no more. God's not forgetful. He doesn't just simply forget. He forgives them and then he deliberately, intentionally chooses not to remember them anymore. As far as the east is from the west is as far as our sins are removed from us. That's real forgiveness. And third, we get a promise of grace. It's a promise of grace. If you belong to Christ, if you have a relationship with him, if you've asked him to forgive your sins, to cleanse you from those things that make you dirty and sinful in his eyes, if you've come to Christ and you found him sufficient for all your real needs, then there's this promise of perpetual blessing. 
Because Christ's covenant, the new covenant, lasts forever. It never ends. It's called the covenant of grace because that's what it brings. Grace. Getting what we don't deserve. A Savior who is sufficient for all of our needs. The old covenant we read is becoming obsolete and growing old. It's ready to vanish away. But the new covenant continues forever because it's founded on Christ who lives forever. These promises are sufficient for you because they're founded on Christ, and Christ is sufficient. And we claim that these promises are sufficient, that Christ himself is sufficient, because the author of Hebrews wants us to know beyond a shadow of a doubt, without a hint of confusion, that Christ is sufficient and Christ is enough, because Christ is our sufficient priest. He is our sufficient priest. We go back to the beginning of this argument in chapter 6, verse 13, all the way through now the end of our passage today, chapter 8, verse 13. And the whole argument is that Christ is our sufficient great high priest. Imagine yourself living in Israel in those days. And you come, obviously a foreigner, none of you are Israelis as far as I know, and so you're a foreigner and you're going to ancient Israel on their high holy day, the Day of Atonement. And being new, you ask, what's going on here? And you'll be told that on this day, by God's decree, the people are ceremonially cleansed from their sins. And you notice that there's two goats and a large bull tied up nearby. And you ask if they're to be used for a sacrifice. And you would learn that one of the goats would be taken by the high priest and sacrificed and its blood sprinkled over the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies, the special room where God dwells in the very center of the temple. And then the high priest would take the second goat, which is called the scapegoat, and he would confess all the sins of all the people on the head of that goat. And then that goat would be led out into the desert, bearing our sins, there to be left to die, abandoned and alone, and thus all our sins are cleansed and carried away for another year. And you understand all that. But it doesn't explain what the large bull is going to be used for. And so it would be explained to you that the large bull is to be sacrificed to cleanse the sins of the high priest. Because before he can do anything about the people's sins, he has to do something about his own sin. And you might ask, wait a minute. Two small goats take care of all the sins of all the people, and yet that large bull just for the high priest? Oh, yes. You'd be told because his sin as the high priest is larger in God's sight than all of ours. And that's what Israel's high priest was like. He had to make atonement for his sin before he could make atonement for our sin. And I imagine as you're listening to this and seeing all this take place before you, it's all somewhat disappointing. You realize we really want something better than that. We want someone holy. We want someone holy. We don't want a high priest who's sinful, who needs a big bull. We want a high priest who's holy. We want a high priest who's sinless 
and spotless and undefiled. We want a high priest who's separated from sinners. We want a high priest who is as good as God is good. But that's not all we want. We want someone human. We want someone human. We don't merely want him to be holy. We also want him to be human. We want a high priest who can share our feelings, who can sympathize with us. We want a high priest who knows what it's like to live in this sinful world, who knows what it's like to be tempted. We want a high priest who knows what it's like to be poor, who knows what it's like to get up for work before the sun, to work at manual labor for low pay, to rub shoulders with men who curse and lie. We want a high priest who understands what it's like to be crowded, misunderstood, cheated, slandered, betrayed. We want a high priest who knows what hurt and suffering are all about. We want him to be holy, but even more, we want him to be human. That's not all we want. Because at some level, we want him to be helpful. We want him to be helpful. We want a high priest who's helpful. We want a high priest who can listen to the people and can grant their requests. Idols can't do that. They can't see, they can't hear, they can't speak, know, or feel. A high priest has to be able to offer real help. But how can one man listen to millions of people? It's impossible. To do that, he would have to have all the attributes of God himself. He'd have to be all-knowing and all-powerful and be everywhere at once. He would have to be both human and divine. That's what we want. We want a high priest who's holy, who's human, and who's helpful. We want a high priest who can satisfy every demand of the law and every righteous claim of God. We want a high priest who can silence Satan and solve our problems and meet our needs. We want a high priest who can truly represent us before the throne of God above, as we just sang, where the real action is in heaven, where ultimately all accounts have to be settled. We want a high priest who's sufficient for the task. But as you've already figured out, we have someone sufficient for the task. We have a great high priest who meets all the requirements. We have a great high priest who represents us, who's holy, who's human, who's helpful, who's both human and divine. We have a great high priest who's fully God and fully man, the Messiah, the Christ. We have a great high priest who's fully sufficient. He's all that we need and he's what our heart truly desires, even if we don't realize it. What we want, we already have. And that just leaves us with one question. What makes all this possible? What makes all this possible? Of course, all this is true and good news only because our great high priest, the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the crucified one, is no longer dead. He rose from the grave on that first Easter morning. All the doubts... <clears throat> all the doubts that crashed in on the disciples as Jesus died. All the doubts as he was on the cross. All the doubts as they put him in the tomb. They're erased in a moment. In a moment. 
They're erased when an angel comes to some women and says, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. If Christ had remained dead, like any other savior, teacher, or prophet in history, his dead, death would have meant nothing more than yours or mine. Death's waves would have closed over him just as they do over every other human life. Every claim he made would have sunk into nothingness. Humanity would still be without hope of being saved from our sin. But that morning when breath entered his resurrected lungs again, when resurrection life electrified his glorified body, everything that Jesus claims, all of his person, all of his work, all of his promises, every one of his claims is fully, finally, unquestionably, and irrevocably vindicated. The book of Hebrews is full of God's gracious and loving eagerness to see his people saved. His throne is one of grace and mercy, and it's God himself who has provided us with a way of salvation in Christ. Our salvation comes about in fulfillment of his promises to Abraham according to the terms of a new and better covenant which promises to save men and women through the person and work of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, our great high priest. Hebrews 9.24 tells us, For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Think about that. Jesus is in the presence of God at the right hand of God the Father, always and forever interceding, praying for you. He's there on our behalf. That's an amazing thought. That the man, Jesus, now sits in splendor at the right hand of his Father in heaven, reigning as the king of the universe. Not only does he reign, but even now he is interceding, praying for his people for you and for me, even as we wait for his final and glorious return. The resurrection of Jesus makes everything he said and did true. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. That makes everything true. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Let's pray together. 
Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and see our Savior. Thank you that you have given him to us as a true king, our perfect prophet, and our great high priest. Thank you that he rose from the grave on that first Easter morning, proving that all his claims are true. So drive these truths deep into our hearts this Easter and make our hearts believe this Easter that our Lord Jesus Christ lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.